This is Artist Stories, featuring the stories of artists and arts organizations in our region. Artist Stories is a project of the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona, which is partially funded by the City of Tucson and Pima County. I'm your host, Ava Romero. Today I'm with Samantha Bungia, aka Rogue Violin, a queer experimental musician, composer, and producer specializing in non-traditional violin performance. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Although, really, this morning you should say welcome to me because we're in your studio. I'm so glad that you can make it. Samantha, you are plotting something that could really revolutionize the scene for musicians in Tucson. Could you talk a little bit about the challenges to making a living here as a musician and how you plan to address some of those challenges directly with Harbor Lighthouse Studios? Absolutely. Yes, thank you. I think that's really great question. So I want to start by saying I came to Tucson about six or seven years ago, and I was really surprised to find the level of talent here. I just wasn't expecting it. I've been fortunate to travel the world playing, and the music community here is especially supportive and encouraging, and I think very special. I think Tucson is a gem in that sense. Um, But I have found that you know, over the years, I've I've observed what I call a, a bit of a glass ceiling for musicians and for talent here. I think what that means is that there's a lack of opportunity to take your career one step farther. Um, I think it's it's not realistic and sustainable to to make a living off of playing in bars and as many opportunities as there are to do that and you know and really supportive organizations that are are hiring us constantly it's not enough when i so when i met my business partner jeffrey anthony we both had this question that we wanted to address which is how do you get musicians more money for what they do and how do you bridge that gap between the independent artist who's playing in bars and working really, really hard and sort of the celebrity, which there's, there's this huge gap in between. Our vision was really to try to fill that in, to sort of envision a more of a middle class for musicians in which you don't have to be working a second job. Um, And so what, what we came up with was a hybrid music studio we're calling it harbor lighthouse studios but it is a combination of music production publishing and licensing and uh, i'll just speak a little bit about the music industry right now it's the the entire publishing industry is probably about 19 billion dollars and there's a trend an escalating trend of sync licensing so i'll explain sync licensing sync licensing is any visual content that's created that needs music to go with it and so in order to get that music video content creators have to secure a license there's such a need for that because there's so much visual content you see it everywhere and it's it's just escalating in production we believe that by connecting artists to sync license we will provide more opportunity for them to create passive income um, because sync licensing is a much more substantial revenue the the industry is changing so much right now certainly the introduction of streaming has completely changed the way record labels are operating and so that isn't even necessarily on a lot of people's radars as an independent artist that's you can you know with spotify it's something uh 0.0000 xyz cents um per stream can i ask you a question about this so we're talking about probably a lot of youtube videos right i mean are there 
a lot of other places because I just, the first thing I think of is YouTube videos because my child consumes a lot of YouTube videos and they all have the same terrible music. <laughs> so what you're telling me is that I might be able to aspire to listen to more interesting music in the YouTube videos that my child is listening to. <laughs> that's, that's actually exactly it. <laughs> thank you for, no, thank you for saying that. Um, Yes, so we actually, what we will be offering is a subscription service to a music catalog. And this music catalog will be very specifically curated. The artists that we are hoping to assemble for this catalog are primarily going to be queer, femme-fronted, trans, non-binary artists, all independent artists. What we're looking for is authenticity. Allies to the queer world that are comfortable using plural pronouns. I think that's really important. I think that's really not reflected in the music industry. It's so, so, so rare that you're driving down the street in your car listening to a song and you can relate to the love story. You know, for me, as a, you know, self-identifying queer, there's a huge need for this. So there are a couple things that visual content creators need, YouTubers especially, and I think that will probably be our first beachhead point in, in terms of who we're offering this to. But they are constantly uh, having issues with copyright infringement and so what happens is as a solution they go to a catalog which quote-unquote says uh, sells itself by saying that they're royalty free and I, I just I want to raise a flag about this this term royalty free because it is the most artist unfriendly term right so the artist is not seeing any of that revenue or hardly any um, I should say and also on top of that the music is mostly stock music so it's cheaply created and produced low sound fidelity um, and and not very original so again going back to this concept of what is authentic and really looking at presenting a catalog that isn't necessarily defined by genre right so you go into a music library and playlist and you're not looking at like uh, you know jazz or smooth jazz right um, you're, it's different it's more it's more artist driven maybe you get a link to what the artist has done in their life and how they identify I think that will elevate the visual content well and actually I think we have a similar problem with visual content I've been looking at a lot of stock photos lately exactly and it's like where are the queer couples where are the people of color where I'm you know I'm doing like a simple search like Latina nurse and absolutely they're it's really limited what I what I come back with you know? yeah no that's a great example that's exactly it we're talking here about inclusion overall but could you also talk to us about why inclusion needs to be a priority for the Tucson music scene just based on your own experiences well I, f well, I first want to give a shout out to um to my friend Jamie Manzer, who actually just addressed that exact question with a recent Zocalo article that came out, and it was it was about she interviewed about a dozen uh, female musicians, and it was really affirming to get this collective experience from all of us and these responses that were very much in line, and I think we have a very vibrant and flourishing community of women um, and femme-identified artists in, in the music community. And I think it's only grown, especially in the last, I want to say, year and a half. Um, I've seen a lot of groups emerge that are trying to address some issues in the community. And some of the most common issues, I want to say, are really, really related to gender biases. 
and I don't think that's specific to the music industry in any way, but I do think that the way it affects our performances, I think there's there's not as much awareness around it. I can give some examples. I myself personally started playing in bands about six or seven years ago, and when I first started, I was usually the only woman in the band and oftentimes the only queer person. And I remember some of my first few recording experiences in Tucson, I would leave holding back tears and um, and devastated, completely devastated. And I think a lot of that had to do with the anxiety of being in a studio with a bunch of bros who oftentimes were drinking and who really I felt unsafe asking questions uh, to and who didn't I didn't feel really hear or acknowledge my suggestions or my input or my professional opinion about about the recording. I think it's that being unheard and being dismissed and not necessarily in a malicious way. These aren't you know, these aren't necessarily bad people, but it's a default. It's a normalized behavior where uh, a woman enters a room with a bunch of guys and she's automatically going to be excluded. You also see this when you are working with sound engineers in different venues and there there have been a, a lot of us who have had this experience around town um, in which we go to a venue and the sound engineer just won't even look us in the eye, will ask us incredibly patronizing questions. I think that's called mansplaining. There's this fear of, of playing that show then because your, your sound engineer is the person uh, that is that is your mirror, that is going to be your way of being heard. And so I think it's countless shows where I've been really scared to ask the sound engineer to do anything for me, you know, maybe turn me up in the monitor because I'm not hearing anything, because I'm afraid that he won't take me seriously and also that there'll be some sort of retribution um, during the show, you know, or some sort of active uh, disengagement. And I, I know that that experience is definitely not unique to, to me as, as a female. But um, it speaks to being part of a team. I mean, in that moment, you're becoming a team that involves that team member who is that engineer. And if you can't trust them, then you can't work with them, right? Absolutely. I, th I think I'm finding more and more, I'm trying to ask for what I need even though I feel uncomfortable. And I think there's a lot of anger for me in that because it's extra work. Why do I need to ask for what, you know, automatically comes to somebody else, you know, specifically, specifically guys? Well, and I feel like women too, as women, we're taught to help men feel more comfortable, mm. right? Like always help men feel more comfortable. Yes, like, absolutely coddle them baby them oh they're flirting with you let them down easy or oh they want a mansplain to you well help them feel important right like whether it's with those words or not we're still taught that in our families in society etc so even trying to break from the mold of you know continuing to try to make sure this person is comfortable so that they don't lash out at me or right. I saw that I don't come off as a bitch or whatever. Absolutely. I, I, I'd love to share this story. It's, it's quite funny. Um, it was, it, so it was just, I think, two nights ago and I was invited to a meetup for Startup Tucson and founders and they were announcing I, I was just accepted 
into their Women in Tech Fellowship Initiative. And this initiative is really about addressing these issues, you know, whether tech can be defined as programming or, you know, in my case, music tech. Um, the issues are similar. You go to a conference, there are five women and 50 men. And so I was standing, we had just been announced, and I was standing with uh, two other tech fellows. There were three of us, and we were, we were talking about just this issue, about a lot of assumptions that men make when they see a woman in the industry. And so this, the assumptions are that you're in a, a more... HR position, right? That you're dealing with staffing and uh, <laughs> administrative items. You know, this is very sort of gendered role. And uh, so we were we we're talking about these stereotypes. And at that exact moment, a man came up to us um, and introduced himself and and said, "Hey, ladies, I was just wondering, are are any of you in HR or or public relations or staffing?" <laughs> and I I looked at him and I was like, "Well." We were just announced as the tech fellows and entrepreneur founders, and so he must be joking. And I said to him, "You're you're joking, right?" And he said, "No, no, no, I'm not. I'm not joking. But but that's what I'm in." And I was like, "Okay, so this is this was it was it was a hilarious moment. You know, there was this assumption on on his part that uh, we we might have been involved in that, and also there was an assumption on my part that he was joking because." <laughs> um, and and I think that I am finding what I what I want to do is is I want to be radically transparent about these issues, even if that means being uncomfortable with my male counterpart. We've had so many really wonderful discussions about this with my business partner. His his name is Jeffrey Anthony, and he's starting this business with me. He's a total champion, and we go into situations, you know, discussing our roles and our expectations because we have to and and because it's helpful to both of us to know, like, how are we going to make this an equitable partnership? Starting right at home, starting right where you are, right? If everybody contributed to a reexamination of equity and roles, starting right where they are. Right, exactly. Maybe in a different place. Yeah, and I think that's that's easier said than done. It's actually really hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, even if you're in the grocery store and there's someone in front of you and I've had this experience and it's a guy and he's unaware of the space he's taking and he, you know, just isn't really willing to move up or let you <laughs> share that, you know, that grocery line space. And how do you ask for it in a non-apologetic way? I'm not talking about being an asshole, but... How do you say, hey, please, you know, pay attention. Just just pay attention. Be aware. And the next thought that I have in those situations is if this person is so lacks that awareness to that extent where they can't even tell how much space they're taking up in the context of the world that they're in, right? They don't have that spatial awareness or that situational awareness. Then what could I possibly say to them that would make them realize what they're doing right it automatically seems like well if you're not already there then how could I make you see I think that's I think that's a great question and I also think the other thing I wrestle with is is it my job to do that and do I have to take that on because I don't I don't love doing it I think we just we have to sit with those questions and and we we choose we choose our battles. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And some days, you know, it's your break, 
right? Like, exactly. you know, I'm not going to get involved because it's my break. It's my day off from educating everybody <laughs> right now. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. And there, there's a lot of that and there's a lot of room to grow. But I do think that there are folks in the women community in Tucson who are doing that work. You know, the Electric Witch Workshop is emerging. These are workshops, um, you know, very femme-friendly spaces that are empowering women to ask these questions and to, to have language and confidence around them. I do think confidence is key. I think sharing our stories is key, sharing our stories with each other. So we collectively understand how we have power in addressing the issues. Samantha, could you tell us um, a bit about your personal artistic trajectory? So I started playing violin when I was almost five years old, and I started playing before I learned how to read. So that meant I read music before I learned how to read the alphabet. And I remember going to my first concert just knowing that that's what I wanted to do forever. I was so young, I... It was hard to find a violin that was big enough for me to play. I started taking lessons and, and my mother used to play as well and so she would help me practice and it was always a priority um, in my life and I'm, I'm very, very lucky my parents supported that for a very long time even though lessons were very expensive and they had very little money. When I made the decision to go to music school, it was with these really, really big ideas. You know, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it was very much big fish in a small pond. I got, um, I, w I was very fortunate to have some really, really young solo opportunities. Uh, I got to play with the New Mexico Symphony Orchestra. I think I was about 11 or 12 and I did a, a Mozart concerto with them. Um, and I I didn't I think I I didn't I was I was really idealistic and I I didn't necessarily understand the world in classical music as it relates to careers and making money. And I think that's a really common story for, you know, people going into college <laughs> in general, not just music. But when I was entering the conservatory, I had no idea. You know, I I think I would definitely not call the conservatory experience a typical college experience. I, I woke up very, very early, practiced oftentimes eight to ten hours a day. Every single class was very music specific. Um, and it was very, very, very competitive. You know, I think there were two openings for each studio and uh, something like 400 applicants. So, you know, I think during that time you change as a person and your experience in school is so formative. I learned a lot about myself during those four years and I learned a lot about why I play music and I had a really hard time in school with, with my intention behind learning an instrument at this level you know when you focus so so much on one thing everything else kind of falls away i was worried about that i was worried about not contributing to my greater community um you know it, was, it feel, felt like a selfish thing to do to be focusing so much on you know just just this technique for this for my instrument and so it was my last year of of college and i decided to set up a bunch of community-based performances so I think I felt sick of performing for 
the same academic crowd for my peers, for my teachers, people who already knew the music and had heard it a hundred thousand times. So I went to Oberlin Conservatory and, and about 30 minutes away was Cleveland and so I set up a few performances at a homeless shelter there and some local nursing homes and it was just me and my friends just going and my experience in those places and playing in those places was really transformative in the way that I thought about music really sort of just this reminder of why I love it of the effect and possibility of healing and of just connection that you can have when you play I was getting really far away from that in in music school so I I stepped back after I graduated I did and I took time to pursue a lot of other things I was a accepted as a fellow it was a wine at Clayton fellowship and I went to London and I I worked in a nonprofit that worked with adults with serious mental illness and I was incredibly passionate about it and at the same time I was um, scooped up by a local Celtic pop band in the UK and so we were touring and this was my first experience with you know super non-classical music completely improvised it was incredibly magical. It was incredibly magical. So, and I, th- you know, through a, a series of what what do I do next? What do I do next? Experiences. I ended up in AmeriCorps, and then I ended up in Tucson after that. And at that time, when I got to Tucson, I thought I was done playing, to be completely honest. And um, it was actually a, a really, it was it was a point that really hurt. I couldn't listen to classical music without feeling uh, an incredible amount of anxiety and and sadness. So I, I didn't listen to it, and I started working at a, lo- a local behavioral health center called Our Place Clubhouse, and I loved it, and I, I was there for about two or three years. During that time, someone found out that I played violin. I was, I was standing in a bar and standing in the back, and uh, Jimmy Carr, this, this guy I... I ended up playing with um, he was performing and I, I didn't know him at the time but someone had told him that I play violin and there happened to be a violin there and uh, he just he called me up to the microphone without ever having heard them I never I never heard them play before and he was like like I want you to come play with us and I I did I tried I tried one song and it was one of the scariest things I've ever done and it was incredibly liberating it was incredibly liberating and I so I started playing with, with a bunch of groups in town. Tudor Hatchback was one of the first groups that invited me to, to join them, Dante and Marco Rosano. They're sort of jazz, rag-based, and there's this completely, completely different approach, I think, to making music when you're playing with a band or when you're or when you're playing classical music. And I'm I'm not saying one is better than another, but I needed this approach very much in my life. It just it allowed for a freedom of of expression and of making mistakes I think an allowance of making mistakes that I I wasn't allowing myself from the age of you know 4 to 22 when you when you learn an instrument and when you're trying to perfect it you know the 10,000 hours that you put in you become a perfectionist and I think I'm still learning how in in these other groups and I'm still I'm still working with other musicians who are helping me let go of that notion of perfectionism and embrace something else, which is the beauty in being messy and being spontaneous. That's really exciting to me. As I hear you tell about your trajectory, I think about this question, this conversation I've been having with a couple of people lately, which is a constant feeling of 
how can we even be making art when there's so much need and Mm -hmm. how can we even be you know it seems like oh music is frivolous under the circumstances you know we're in this national crisis or even you know Mm -hmm. global crisis of inequity and people are you know grief stricken over (laughs) the state of our democracy and they're like can I even make art like is this even okay (laughs) so there's there's that I think that that really speaks to a lot of people and also um just as a former academic myself I hear a lot of echoes of kind of what I was going through when I decided I wasn't gonna I was gonna leave academia and I was thinking how could I possibly continue the things that made me love this trajectory in some other venue. And in the beginning, I was so single-minded, I had no idea how. And I would try to imagine my future and I would just see like a blank screen. It was, there was nothing there. When I turned away from what I had been focused on single-mindedly for a decade, I couldn't imagine anything else. And it took a long time to try to figure out what that could be and piece that together and realize that there are different avenues and different venues in different ways I think that's actually a problem that a lot of people um, who are trying to exit academia or who are currently exiting academia are facing oh absolutely I can't tell you how many friends I have that went to school and and left with similar feelings I th- you know I think there's a bit of a support group that we've developed right so how do we get over this academic experience and honestly the very real trauma behind it I you know, I, I had an experience with a college professor that was uh, incredibly, incredibly harmful. You know, it was a very sort of old school, verbally abusive. I will never forget certain, some of the things that he said in front of my peers. Like, I, I was crying on stage and, and he got up in front of everybody and said, Samantha, you will never forget this moment and I want you to never forget this moment. You know, that sort of intentional, like, uh, with, you know, I think he was trying to break me down and build me up, right, that mentality. And I think that's problematic. And I think it's driving people away. And I think I think we can talk about it more. Yeah, I think that's, that's one solution. I think I have found some healing in trying to remap what I thought I wanted with what I really wanted. And I think that is the hardest, that is one of the hardest things to do. I will say that I was very lucky. I, I received a scholarship from Katie Haverly in town, and she was working at the time with artists. She was a life coach, and it was a really it was a transformative few months because she was able to give me tools to examine how to determine what you really want. And I, I think that's no small thing, and it's something that is constantly, constantly changing. And so needing to always check in and say, hey, I'm building a new business, (laughs) you know, this is really scary. Am I still going to have time for my performance? Um, You know, I'm cutting back on all these gigs. Like, am I going to be able to practice? Like all of these things are, are, are really scary. But then I think just talking about artists, I'm like, well, this is, this is an opportunity I would have loved, you know, I would have loved for a producer to hand me a business card in Tucson and say, Hey, we want to, we want to include your music in our catalog. And we think that people will, will really hear it in this catalog. You have talked about it a little bit, but I wondered if you could elaborate a tiny bit more on what it's like to play an instrument at the level of proficiency at which you've played. You used a a comparison that I really liked, a professional sports comparison. I often say that the folks that I relate most to are athletes who are 
preparing for like the Olympics. <laughs> it's a there's a level of concentration and physicality about playing an instrument that uh, I think is kind of romanticized <laughs> in the same way that you know sports training can be romanticized. Um, I remember when I first got to the conservatory, I. I definitely felt like I was behind and, and I tried to compensate by practicing more. Um, that means, you know, instead of practicing six hours, I was practicing 10, you know, it was, it was, it was a lot. I ended up injuring myself that semester and it was right before we were scheduled to perform at Carnegie Hall. And there was a chance I was not going to be able to go on that trip. We were playing Berlioz. It was a very, very hard piece. I was devastated. I, I just fell into a really deep depression because what I had to do was I could only play 15 minutes a day. I had some very, very specific um, stretching routines and that lasted for like a, a good two months. That moment was a really big waking up point for me because I recognized that playing an instrument, there was everything I did was related to that, right? So it was like if I had a performance in the evening, like what I ate that morning would affect that performance in the same way, you know, as an athlete, in the same way as an athlete. And also just the uh, sort of mental focus that it takes to handle nerves. There's so, you know, there's so many different components. I was part of a study when I was in Oberlin about performance and about nerves and one of the things they had us do was to uh, run around the entire building twice and then come back into the classroom and totally cold not having warmed up stand on top of a desk and play your entire piece from memory and so what that was doing was it was simulating the physical symptoms of what it means to be anxious to be to be to have nerves and performing performance anxiety your arms are shaking your heart is rapidly beating you're sweating you're cold and you just have to play and so what are the what are the tools when your body and physical self is acting that way to to get through that and i i don't necessarily have the answer to that but also you know there's that number there's that you know, it takes 10,000 hours or something to to really master any one thing. And I think one of the things that I'm dealing with now, just out of my 20s and having performed and played violin the majority of my life is now that I, I've built this platform of learning the violin, there, there are other things that I want to learn. And it's hard to approach them without the expectation that I'm going to spend another 10,000 hours learning it because I think when you learn something to that degree, you realize how much you don't know about everything else, right? So the amount of time I spent learning violin, I could have been sp spending, you know, learning about microphones or learning about re recording, which I'm definitely moving into now. And so moving into something new becomes really, really, really scary because I know what a curve it is to get to get up there. But I also think that it's given me the tools to, to do that. It's given me the practice tools and the discipline. And I think, you know, when I teach violin students, I think this is the thing that I value more than them being able to play violin well, is for them to take the skills that it takes to learn how to play and apply that in other parts of their lives. I'm actually a recovering perfectionist myself. Recovering <laughs> perfectionist. Yes, I love it. That is exactly it. What I've come to the realization of is that I'm also doing a lot of things that are outside of where I feel comfortable. My impulse is also mastery and I'm doing a lot of stuff that I am not a master of and I've 
getting to a point where I'm like, you know what? It's okay that I only kind of halfway have a grasp on this because my half-ass work in this field is better than if nobody was doing it and nobody would be doing it right now if I weren't here doing it. So this half-ass work that I'm doing is actually worth so much more than if I wasn't doing it because I didn't feel comfortable enough to do it because I didn't feel like a pro at it already. Well, guess what? If I waited to feel like a pro at it, I wouldn't do it and nobody else is doing it. So I love that. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely love that. So um, I received a a mini start grant from the Arts Foundation of Tucson and Southern Arizona uh, in October of 2019. And I'm super excited about it. it. This grant subsidize the purchase of a microphone for my home studio um which you're we're in right now and it's a very special microphone i'm I'm very enamored of it it's a aea 84 ribbon microphone and it's incredibly versatile and i especially wanted this microphone because of the way that it responded to violin it has a wonderful warm tone and it's really diverse in all the ways that i can use it and so some of the things that i've proposed to do with this microphone for this grant um the first and most important to me is making songs at making and recording songs about queer subculture and so we actually just released one in in November glass bottle heart all of these songs for this particular project include small samples of interviews within the queer community and so I really wanted to have a collection of songs that was reflective of my values in my life and the wonderful little bubble that I live in um, which I want to share with folks and I want to you know I want to hear more about other folks little bubbles so that's one thing that I'm 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 doing as part part of the project. The other thing that I've I'm hoping to do is I've really started introducing recording techniques to my violin students. Um, I unfortunately don't have as many students right now because the business is taking over, but I, I've had the opportunity to record them, you know, say for Christmas and send them home with a thumb drive that has like two or three songs of, that they've either written themselves or they've been able to record. And I think this is super important because I myself didn't start recording until I was older and I think there's a huge fear around it. Thank you for speaking with us today, Samantha. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I appreciate it. This has been Artist Stories with Ava Romero, featuring the stories of artists and arts organizations in our region. To listen to more podcasts, visit kxci.org. Artist Stories is a project of the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona, which is partially funded by the City of Tucson and Pima County.